Welcome to Mandaria Legends. I am your host, Michael Stone. As a reminder, I won't likely be using any new character suggestions for the remainder of this season, but I am taking new character suggestions for season two, because although I'm not quite done with this season yet, I am already outlining some of the work for the next one. So if you're interested, just go to MandariaLegends.com to submit your character idea, and if you get lucky, you and your character can get featured on the show. And if you like the show, remember, there are three key things you can do to help keep this going. First, you can like, rate, comment, and or subscribe. Leaving a review especially helps. Second, you can go to patreon.com and subscribe to our show there to earn exclusive elite member benefits like merch, ad-free episodes, and more. Finally, and most importantly, you can share this podcast with a friend because the best way to enjoy a story is with someone else. Now, without further ado, we bring to you Episode 7, The Blade Hand. The lava was close. The sweltering heat of Cruz was made even more unbearable by the encroaching lava, now only hundreds of paces away. Pathan stood outside Aeltha's tent, watching the Maieli hydromancers channeling the waters of the sea, attempting to slow the molten river's advance. Columns of steam attested to their desperate efforts to save their camp. But... As Pathan had feared, the Draconids did not sit idly by. The winged demon-like flyers were attacking alongside their mountain's fiery blood. They flew high above the chaos, reaching out with their sigil-marked hands to will the lava to swell and break through the freshly cooled rock the Hydromancers had created. Horribly, Pathan heard the screams of not a few Maeli catch fire, and worse, as they were quickly enveloped by Mount Ruren's relentless flow. There really won't be an evacuation, thought Pathan. Aglam really is that insane. He would rather let these soldiers die like this than admit defeat. These human soldiers especially, this wasn't war. It was their last desperate struggle to live survive against all odds and as pathan turned his head he saw the order most of whom had packed their tents and gathering to head down to the bay away from the terrors of the battle aeltha was still in her tent which pathan had instructed the others to leave up aeltha was no stranger to what was happening outside her tent but with everything pathan knew she was dealing with he still didn't have the heart to force her out into the open, to face the looks on her fellow soldiers' faces. For whether they were elvish or minotaur, orcish or human, the look on each of their faces was the same that Pathan knew was likely on his own face, a look he might not have been able to completely hide from Aeltha. And that look was shame. A human Maeli runner came up from the bay and handed a parchment to Pathan. As Pathan read it by the early afternoon's dim light, his eyes widened in shock and anger as the shame he had been just feeling slipped away. But Aglam's runner had disappeared, likely having been instructed to do so immediately after the delivery. Pathan had little choice 
but to relay the grave news to Aeltha. Moments later, he was in her tent and explained to her the king's missive. Aeltha stopped him mid-sentence, however, jumping up in alarm. He dares bar us from our own ship as well, Aeltha gasped. What is that fool fish thinking? Pathan somberly bowed his head. Though I won't usually credit the king with much thinking, this particular move does seem well planned on his part. We are but only one company of about a hundred wielders in the middle of a Maieli army of thousands. Even if we were to fight our way to our ship, nothing would stop Aglam from burning it before we reached it. And even if he didn't do that, the Maieli control the seas. We wouldn't last a day in those waters with the vengeful Merfolk king and his forces coming after us. He waited until we had no time left for any other options. Pathan sighed. Aglam may also be counting on the fact that even though you have the blade, he has the order surrounded by his troops. I'm not sure that he'd be so cold-blooded and foolhardy as to attack the order of the blade, but I am not sure he wouldn't either. Pathan somberly concluded, From the tone of that letter, it sounds as if he won't allow any of us access to the ships until the war ends the way he wants it to, with Stradrix in ruin. Eltha's face was frozen in incredulity mixed with panic. She took some steps back and sat on the ground, burying her face in her feathered hands. Pathan hesitated, gathering his wits, and spoke. My lady, I want to help. Eltha, her face still buried in her hands, gently shook her head. I know you do. She then looked up at her squire, and surprisingly, Pathan saw a deep, wounded anger. How dare you? Why? Why do you want to help me? Pathan now froze. He couldn't tell her. It would ruin everything and only confuse her even more. Look at me, Pathan. I am a walking blasphemy. You and I have both been taught what the blade hand is supposed to do, what the blade hand is supposed to be, our people's most sacred trust, our world's best hope for peace. I need to act, but I can't. Wind started to swirl around Aeltha's tent, knocking belongings, food, and whatnot aside as the sigil of Prokelha lit up on the back of her right hand. Pathan, ready for it this time, lit his own god shard, trying to counter the winds Aeltha was unintentionally making with his own. The tent wasn't going to blow down now, but papers and other things in the tent still flew about. I am supposed to be the best of us, Pathan, but you know better. I can't do it. Doctrine teaches that the blade hand is supposed to be a master of skymancy, but it controls me. Doctrine urges that I be wise and decisive, but I still have no clue who it is I should stand with or against in this war. Doctrine requires a blade hand to not fear death, but... The growing squall around them stilled. Pathan drew back his own winds as well, as he saw Aeltha weep quietly. Pathan knelt, a heaviness in his throat as he mentioned it. But 
There's the prophecy. Eltha's hands flew to the sides of her head, her taloned fingers clawing at her temples. I just can't. Not after my mother, my father, my sister. There's no one left in my family but me. And by the day in Pathan, all this death. Have you not ever thought of death, Pathan? So many gone, just gone. How can I be the standard bearer of our people's faith if I don't have faith in what comes after death? What will all this mean if if I die and then there's just nothing? Deep within Pathan, a tightly bound force was breaking its chains. He couldn't. She was the blade hand. He was nothing, a squire. Eltha continued, And if the Dane is still alive like the doctrine teaches, why has he let so much evil happen? How could he let so many die? How could he be so foolish to let a loathsome, pitiful idiot like me get the blade? If Yale still watches over us and gives us life breath, why did he take it away from my sister? Pathan still couldn't. He shouldn't. Had to push it back. It would be blasphemy. And there was enough of that in this tent. And yet, with each searing doubt, Eltha cried out. The force Pathan was struggling to restrain bounded upwards in the pit of his stomach. No, he told himself. Not like this. I will not. She comes first, not me. Eltha locked her gaze with Pathan's now. So tell me, squire, why do you just stand there? How can you stand seeing this? Ping gripped Eltha's face as she angrily grabbed him by the scuff of his shirt. Why can't you please just hate me? With that, the dam of duty and decorum that had held Pathan back cracked. He lashed his arms outwards and embraced Aeltha. Shock shot through Aeltha's frame. For a moment, Pathan felt an intense surrealism. Part of him wanted to stop, to fly away and never be heard from by anyone ever again. But more of him couldn't imagine anything better than this closeness, this long-awaited miracle. Pathan stood back, and Aeltha's hands, which had been caught between them, slowly fell. To say Aeltha was surprised was an understatement. She appeared as if she could hardly believe what had just happened. If Pathan were higher born and had read more, perhaps he would have had the words. But all he could manage to say to her was, I can't hate you, and... I wish you didn't hate yourself. Eltha was still in shock. And then a soft warmth, the barest of smiles, twitched at her eyes. Pathan was sure of it. That was happiness on her face. If even ever so briefly, even if mixed with confusion, that was happiness. 
Pathan rested a hand on her shoulder. Every day of my life, I have been surrounded by our people's religion, just like you, Aeltha. For so many of us, however, our beliefs have made us hollow copies of one another, with no sincerity or genuineness to what we do. Pathan looked meaningfully at Aeltha's eyes. But not you. You are the most authentic, the most real person I have ever known. And I hope that maybe we... Aeltha did not move for a moment. Then she raised a hand to hold Pathan's face. Wonder, filling those beautiful eyes the squire had been ensnared by so long ago. Wild thoughts flooded Pathan's mind, but were halted by a fresh round of explosions nearby. They were out of time. So, Pathan looked right at Aeltha and explained to her his plan, all at once, for the moment putting it to the side, the unbelievable joy he was feeling. He knew this plan could work, and like his feelings for Aeltha, it would probably be the worst blasphemy either of them could consider. But, if there was any way for the two of them to find the time, ever again, for more such wild moments, this would be the only way. The archchief was overlooking the battlefield from an outcropping of rock, high above the lava, but close enough to pick out, however faintly, the faces of the Maieli as they battled her forces. Salast was hopeful this day would be it. At least, she thought she was Salast. Never had she stayed conscious this far into the month. If it was late in the month. Was it late in the month? How late was it? Zena was standing by, apparently with orders from Salast to keep her safe. Salast had wanted to see this through no matter what, but something was wrong, besides her memory. Deeply wrong. Zena seemed smaller than usual. Salast also felt stronger, much stronger. Was it always like this? Was this increased size and strength normal at this time of the month? With as bad as her memory was right now, however, she likely wouldn't be learning that answer soon. A brief, small window of clarity came. Salast remembered. The tidal dragon. Messiox. That blue-winged monstrosity would be here soon. Salas did not know why this dragon had ignored the Maeli to date, but she did remember that Messiox was like the rest of her kind, a weapon of mass murder and the sworn enemy of all draconids. It was her duty as archchief of the greatest dragon hunters of Mundaria to bring down this existential threat once and for all. Salast looked to Zena. The tidal dragon, do you see her? Zena kept her unwavering gaze on the sky, standing some ten paces ahead of her archchief. No, she will be here, though, 
It is nearly time. Anticipation swelled in Salast, the promise of deliverance from her affliction so close. The tidal dragon was going to fall today. Thank you, Zena, for your patience, for your help in keeping me awake. I think the reason I am feeling so strong right now is that the tidal dragon hasn't been able to sap my strength like she usually does. There it was again, that feeling of hope. When this is all over, it will be you, Zena. It will be because of you, your brother, all my friends, that I will finally be free of this curse. Zena nodded, but kept her eyes peeled on the skies. Likely knowing that a massive beast that had slain hundreds of her adoptive people was going to appear any moment was keeping her attention. Maybe Tsalost would be able to have that focus soon. And not forget. Then, Zena started, drawing her spear and training her fierce green eyes on something just above the Maeli camp. Tsalost was again feeling the fog coming over her, her memory slipping. No, not now, she thought. Is it her? Is it Messiox? Tsalost asked as she blearily blinked around, Zena's auburn hair shifting in and out of focus. She shook her head. At least Tsalost thought that was what she did. Zena answered, No, it isn't Messiox. A tension in her voice caught her words like chained weights on a prisoner's feet. It... I don't believe it. It's the blade hand. Loella had nearly finished overseeing her own staff's preparations to leave when she heard the news. The blade hand. She was out of her tent again. All her panic, and leftover angst and yet another fruitless discussion with Aglam, vanished as she swam up to the top of the bay waters, away from her mer-crab servants. And there the blade hand was, her brown feathered wings bearing her aloft in the sky as she positioned herself above the ocean, less than a hundred nautical paces from Loella, but almost as high up from the water's surface. The island of Cruz in front of her was overcast with mist and smoke from the battle at the camp's borders and from the lava. The afternoon sun shone at her back, giving her a radiant silhouette as she clutched the banishing blade in her taloned feet, which, for avians, seemed somehow more natural to Loella. And then the blade hand's hand glowed. Loella had to shield her eyes. So bright was the light emanating from where she knew the sigil of Aeltha's god shard must be. Loella tried to pick out what Aeltha was doing, but she heard it before she saw it. A rushing wind, more powerful and terrible than Loella had ever known in her life or in legend, began to blow above her, downwards toward the periphery of the Maeli camp. Loella then watched as she saw the fierce wind slam against the lava, flames shooting away from the Maeli camp. On the beach itself, below the massive windstorm hitting the lava at the borders of the camp, Loella saw the Maeli similarly looking up in awe. 
As the prevailing winds were focused beyond their position, what little cross-currents of air made their way around the Maeli did force them to the ground, but they were not picked up into the air, as was the case for the Draconids, who had been previously flying above the lava. Loella watched in awe, wondering if Aeltha was going to cool all the lava into rock. Soon, she found she was mistaken. The blade hand wasn't trying to cool all the lava. She was blowing it back. The summoned wind shot at the lava, scouring it from the beach and pelting it backwards. The winds began to move slowly up, scraping up the lava, causing it to flow back on itself. The orange glow of the lava hit by the winds nearly instantly dissipated. But as the soft, only superficially cooled rock became dislodged by the wind, large clumps of partially cooled lava were flung back like so much mortar. The blade hand did not wait, however, to blow all the lava back. As soon as Loella saw that the lava immediately in front of the camp had been cooled to form something akin to a massive backwards tidal wave of stone, Aeltha flew towards the island, slowly moving her windstorm up the land where just a week ago Myelian Draconids had been fighting. More lava cooled and more chunks of it began to be blown back as Eltha trained her windstorm against Stradrix itself. For a moment, Loella wondered if this was what Zeru must have felt when he saw Yale strike down the Dread King. Was this what it was like to see history being written right before your eyes? The senator then looked back at Aeltha, her black helmet glinting in the afternoon sun, hiding what Luella was sure was likely one of the bravest young women she had ever met. Zena had planted her spear in the ground to hold herself fast against the violent windstorm. Fortunately, this was enough, as the winds had begun moving upwards from the rock face where she and Salas were at. She briefly looked behind her to confirm Salas was still there. Her large blue wings shielded her from the pelting sand, rocks, and grit in the storm, and kept her safe. Helplessly, Zena watched as the blade hand's windstorm leveled out, pummeling the hellish landscape. More and more of the land was being cooled, and chunks of the lava were flying back, further and further. Despair seized Zena as she realized what the blade hand was doing. She yelled back to Tsalast, Arts chief! The blade hand means to destroy Stradrix! And, as she said it, she saw the winds train their ferocity against the city itself. Some bricks from the city walls and higher towers crumbled away, but this was nothing compared to what the flying boulders of lava did. They hit the city like bombs, one after another, in a relentless, merciless assault. Walls were being broken down, towers were beginning to crack and fall. Stradrix 
the mighty last fortress of the dragon hunters of Mundaria, was falling. If the bombardment did not stop soon, it wouldn't just mean the end of the war, but the end of everyone Xena knew and loved on Cruce, including her twin, Zico, who she knew was somewhere in the city. How could this be? They had been so close, so close to victory. The Maieli were on the brink of extermination. And yet, there was nothing Xena could do now. Even if she was a draconid herself, the winds would have prevented her from flying up to challenge the blade hand. A draconid would have to have much more girth and be much stronger than your garden variety winged dragon hunter. Who could... An idea striking her, she began to turn to look at her archchief and pled for her aid. Archchief, you are the only one strong enough to ride these winds. Do you think that you can? But as her eyes rested on the spot where the archchief had been, her face froze in utter horror. A despair deeper than seeing her home assaulted with the molten blood of Mount Ruren. A pain greater than having lost any friend in this war pierced her heart. For she now knew the secret of Tzalost's curse as she saw the last vestiges of the kindly woman she had served so loyally disappear. A long snout replaced her fair face, her wings widening out to massive proportions. Her arms grew thick with muscle, her body lengthened, her tail stretching out behind her. Celeste wasn't going to slay Messiox today. She was Messiox. Messiox awoke slowly, confused and disoriented. The boiling warm water she had been expected to be there wasn't gently massaging her beautiful blue scales. She was not in the cave. Anger boiled in her. What had gone wrong? That fool, Zeru, she had been deceived. She opened her eyes groggily. She was outside, in a particularly bad windstorm, it seemed. Getting dirt and sand in her eyes didn't injure them, as dragon eyes were made of tougher stuff than other creatures' eyes, but it still stung, only exacerbating her sour mood. Then she saw the Crucian soldier in front of her, and a vicious pleasure erupted in Messiox's face. The young auburn-haired woman was rooted in place by terror. And something else? Pain? It made little difference to the dragon, however. When a snack so stupidly makes itself available to you like this, you don't ask questions. Messiox grinned maliciously and then struck. 
as she swallowed the pitiful creature whole. She looked around, getting a fix on her bearings. She was on cruise, but things had changed dramatically. Lava had covered most of the landscape in front of her, and this wind, it wasn't natural. And as Messiak swallowed, she caught sight of the likely source of the problem right above the bay. In the irritation that hadn't been assuaged by her quick meal vanished instantly as her dragon eyes zeroed in and caught hold of a winged figure with a brightly glowing hand flying in place in the air and, most importantly, holding a sword in its talons. Dark purpose filled Messiox as she began to fly towards what she now recognized was the blade hand. She let out an exultant roar, unable to contain the glee at having been presented such good fortune. Finally, after years of raiding this infernal island, she would seize the power she would need to obliterate the dragon hunters once and for all and slay their sickeningly pacifistic leader to last. Loella wasn't the only merfolk watching the scene. Someone next to her pointed out the dragon first. Many of the others began to cheer even more than they had been. But the cacophony soon died down as they looked on in confusion. Confusion soon gave way to fear as the dragon roared, not showing any signs of changing direction towards the draconids. But while the other Maieli began to dive for safety, Loella saw Messiox was not headed for them, and so she remained, fearing. No, she thought. Fortunately, the dragon's roar seemed to have caught the attention of the blade hand as well. The winds suddenly dissipated. The fiery cataclysm striking Stradthrix halted. Aeltha hesitated. Loella shouted, Get away! Get away, blade hand! And Aeltha dodged just in time as Messiox barreled right through where the blade hand had just been flying in place. Snarling in fury, the dragon circled back, coming around for another pass. Aeltha's black helmet turned to look at Messiox and reached up with her hand. It glowed again as Aeltha flew through the air towards the dragon, wind speeding her along as lightning began lancing out from the skies towards Messiox. Loella could scarcely believe it. Hadn't this child had problems controlling her powers before? Was it the blade that was somehow granting her this impeccable technique? For Eltha flew like a brownish bullet through the skies to pursue Messiax. More and more lightning rained down towards the dragon, who, even as the blade hand attempted to steer her off course with her winds, flew confidently and deftly around each thunderous blast. 
Loella's mind raced. How could she help? She could start using her own hydromancy to distract or injure the dragon, but with as fast as both Messiox and the blade hand were flying, she'd just as likely end up hitting Aeltha, if anything at all. A summoned fog would similarly handicap Aeltha, and seeing as no one else in the Order of the Blade in the Maeli camp could fly, Loella feared that Aeltha would have to meet this fate on her own. After all, she was the Blade Hand, and that meant that no matter what, when the Blade Hand entered the fight, she would come out of it alive and well, no matter what. Messiox pursued her prey, furious. She had underestimated the blade hand, but by all the bones of the draconid dead Messiox had slaughtered, she would rend that feathered body and take that blade. But as fast as Messiox was, the blade hand was faster and it was only a matter of time before one of these infernal lightning bolts crack. A bolt hit Messiox's tail. Incredible, white-hot pain. Messiox nearly fell out of the sky, but then, briefly looking back at her tail, saw that her scales were all still in place. Thank the ancestors. Her thick hide had saved her again, though she hadn't cared much for the electrocution. She needed a strategy. The blade hand was too fast and was impossible to shake. Then, an idea. Perhaps it was time to see if Messiox couldn't provide a distraction for the living legend. Messiox turned towards the Miley camp. She flew as fast as she could, her armored hide hurtling through the air like a meteor. She made her way to a white and blue tent, surrounded by a few other colorful tents that hadn't all yet been struck down. Let us see how many of your order will survive this day, Blade Hand, Messiox wickedly roared. Then a force hit Messiox from the side knocking the wind out of her and sending her careening just past the Miley camp. She crashed, hitting the rocky ground beneath her hard. The thin layer of stony ground gave way in several places to the lava underneath. Fortunately, even this heat wasn't enough to do real harm to Messiox, but the dragon knew better than to keep her scales in direct contact with the lava for very long. A foul smell rose up from the cracks as Messiox floundered to stay up. Well, so much for the plan of taking one of the Blade Hand's order hostage. Blast, she thought. Then again, perhaps, yes, a blast. Finding that foul smell again, Messiox waded further around in the lava, trying to make it appear as if she had gotten stuck. The avian Blade Hand started to fly straight towards Messiox, blade glinting as the feathered nemesis drew it, ready to strike through Messiox on impact. And, just as the blade hand was about to cross over where Messiox had initially landed, the dragon shot out a fireball towards the fumes above her impact crater. A loud explosion rang out. The blade hand hadn't had time to move out of the way. She couldn't have, 
Could she? Silence followed the explosion. Even Messiox waited with bated breath as the smoke cleared, and as the naturally occurring winds gently blew away the smoke, Messiox grinned. The blade hand was badly injured, lying on one patch of volcanic stone where Messiox had similarly crashed but a moment ago. She was coughing, her feathers singed everywhere, and most beautifully, the blade had been dropped. Having landed just about a fourth of Messiox's wingspan away from the avian, greedily, yet also taking time to savor the moment, Messiox strode forward and grasped the blade with her scaly right hand. Don't fret, little bird, Messiox taunted. This at least means you won't be around to see me kill everyone else here. Looking at the blade hand's helmet, Messiox saw another opportunity. Allow me to just take this. Dragons and their treasures, I am sure you understand. Her eyes caught hold of the beautiful craftsmanship of the black helm. The dragon took it off the blade hand's head, not caring to prevent her victim's head hitting the unforgiving stone with a painful sounding crack. Bringing her tail around to her front, Messiox rested the hilt of the banishing blade at the tip of her tail. She then placed the helmet in her mouth, melted it with her flames, and then gently spewed the metal out onto her tail and the blade. As the blade hand coughed helplessly in the background, Messiox blew air gently on her tail, watching as the metal quickly cooled, fixing the banishing blade onto her body. Messiox gave a wicked grin. And so, blade hand, you witness the rise of your successor, Messiox triumphantly crowed. She swished her newly armed tail around, grinning savagely. I can think of only one way to truly cap this moment. Messiox turned to the still coughing blade hand and again mocked her. A pity you seem to have breathed in some of these fumes. I almost was going to let you have some final words. And, turning to face the blade hand, Messiox brought her tail crashing down towards the avian. The sapient bird gave an odd choking noise as the banishing blade sliced through her exposed midriff. And, in moments, the irritating little creature was dead. And with that, Messiox took to the skies, turning to face Stradtherix, and armed with the mightiest weapon in the world, Messiox glared at the home of her enemies. At long last... After so many years, today was finally the day the Draconid people would meet their utter extinction. Tears streaming from her face, 
Loella simply couldn't shake the curling storm of despair choking her throat. Multiple reports had confirmed it. The blade hand, dead, slain by the tidal dragon. Furthermore, it was heading towards Stradtherix, for what Loella feared would be the darkest of massacres. But before anything, she had to tell Pathan. She owed him that much. She was the one that had pushed Aeltha to this doom. For all the political considerations of the potential Maeli civil war, somehow, Loella felt in her heart that she had again failed, that she had taken the easy way out. Again, she had ruined someone else's life because of her own ego. What was worse, Loella had seen how Pathan had shyly stolen glances at Aeltha every opportunity he could get, back when they had been talking this morning. He deserved to be one of the first to know. Loella owed him that much. Her palatine quickly rushed through the stave-lined camp of the Order of the Blade. She called out to the white and blue tent, her face streaming with tears at what she had done, what she had allowed to have happen. Pathan! Pathan, please! I need you! Please come out! A brief moment passed. An avian stepped out of the tent, and immediately, amazement swept over Loella, quickly followed by incredible horror. For it was Aeltha who stood before her. What has happened? Aeltha asked. Is he safe? Did he do it? Seeing the look on Loella's face, Aeltha's eyes widened. She flew straight to Loella's palatine, grasping the senator's shoulders. What is wrong? Where is Pathan? Thank you so much for listening. Remember to like, subscribe, and leave a rating for us to let us know what you liked in this episode. You can also support us on Patreon.com. Just look for Mundaria Legends or use the link in the description. And remember, one of the simplest, easiest ways you can support us is simply by letting a friend know about the show. Thank you again so much for listening, especially as we just get started. Stay safe and remember, you can't see the hero if you don't know the monster.